I also would like to welcome each one here this evening. Special welcome to each one. And again, I bring you greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the eternal living word. I always am intrigued by John's gospel as he begins there as he does his introduction to Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. The wonder of God becoming flesh. We know that God communicated with man. If we look at Hebrews chapter 1, it says God in sundry times and in diverse manners have spake unto the fathers in the past, but he hath in this last days spoken unto us by his son Jesus Christ, whom he hath appointed to be heir of all things. And so we have, uh, we have John here in his introduction to Jesus. He talks about the word. Uh, in the beginning, God communicated with man uh, through various means, but, uh, you know, we, we have uh, Jesus being the ultimate, uh, the ultimate expression of God's uh, message to humanity uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, we look at, you know, Jesus coming to earth. Uh, he came because of our need. You know, man by the choice of disobedience under the Satan's enticement, we find sin entering the world and death by sin. We look at Romans chapter five, uh, verse 12. It says there that whereby as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed unto all men for all have sinned. And if we go down through that passage there, we find that for if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in Christ Jesus. What a blessing this evening. This evening, I just want to look at the, one of the imperatives of the gospel. When we look at imperatives, imperatives are are the, the uh, let me get my notes back together here. You know, in life, we like to categorize things. You know, we have the things that are important. Uh, there's then those things that we move up a little higher on the level of importance. And, uh, Tonight, we want to look at something that is of ultimate importance. It's what I call the imperative of the gospel. It's an absolute. It's something that is uh, non-negotiable. I would like you to turn this evening to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And that title this evening is that ye must be born again. Like I said earlier that you know there are things in life that we tend to like to categorize by the way of a, uh, importance you know it might be important 
to carry an umbrella in the car just in case it rains. Uh, there might be some other things that are important to have with you when you travel. But the imperative is if you don't have gas in the tank, you're not going anywhere. And it's, it's the same way here as we look at the new birth. You know, Jesus emphatically tells Nicodemus, he says, ye must be born again. I'd like to read John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, as we look at this imperative of the gospel. Ye must be born again. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And, Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he, 
but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of religion in the world today, but the reality is, you know, we cannot, uh, religion is not going to save a person. Uh, the bottom line is, as Jesus has said here, a man, an individual, in order to enter the kingdom, uh, he first of all says, even to see the kingdom, and I believe what he's talking about there, he says, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, without that new birth, there is no way of understanding the things, the spiritual things that God has given to his people. Uh, we'll look at that a little more as we go on. But the, the, the thing that Jesus says here is that we must be born again. And, uh, you know, I, as I think of that, uh, there, was, there was, you know, we can become, uh, we can be religious people, we can be good people. Uh, there's people I know that put on a lot of emphasis on being good. But, you know, they they would deny the new birth. Some years ago, I was in a local hardware store there in our area, and while I was in there, I noticed two men that were dressed in blue robes, blue and white, white robes, down to their ankles. They had sandals on their feet. Uh, they were clean-cut looking men. Uh, they're their garment had a rope tied around their waist with a cross hanging on it. I was kind of intrigued by that. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll just get a chance to talk with these men. And, of course, the opportunity came. I had walked out of the store right about the same time they walked out of the store. And... Uh, you know, I asked them, I said, sir, may I ask you a question? And uh, he, he said, well, yeah, yes, he said, you can ask me a question. I said, I don't mean to be offensive, but I see you're dressed in a rather conspicuous way, and it would seem to me that it has some religious significance to you. And he readily agreed that, yes, he does. And I said, what is, you know, what is the reason of, doing what you're doing and who are you? He said, well, I'm a, he rattled off a big long row and, and uh, he, one of the two words out of it, I heard of, you know, he was of the order of the Franciscans. And so I listened a little bit. I said, well, uh, then in other words, I said, I, I don't mean to be offensive, but would that be commonly what is commonly known as a monk, you know, as a Catholic monk. And he said, yes, that is correct. And so I looked at their, their faithfulness, their steadfastness, and I asked him, you know, I don't know, there's a, there's a burden fell on my heart as I spoke with that man. And I said, I understand that you are a religious man. But I said, have you? been born again. He said, born again? 
What do you mean? Um, it was the first time that I think someone ever challenged him on his persuasions of religion. And when he kind of got over that, he said, what do you mean, born again? I said, well, in the Bible, Jesus teaches, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, you know, from there on, the, I said very little. I got lectured quite long and hard. First of all, that I had no authority to use the scriptures whatsoever. Uh, and I was using a very corrupted scripture and that I was not authorized by God to even understand the scriptures and it went on. Uh, and we finally parted ways, but the truth and the reality is this evening, we can be ever so religious, we can be ever so pious, but unless we have been born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. And so it's important that we understand what the new birth is. And I'd like to look at three points as we look at this scripture. The first of all, I would like to get the context a little bit here of John chapter 3 and this man Nicodemus. I'd like to, first of all, just consider Nicodemus's life. And I'd like to look at the imperative of what Jesus said, ye must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? You know, if it's such a crucial step in life, it's so important that we understand it correctly. And then the new birth and the evidence of that new birth. So as we think of this man, Nicodemus, we don't know a lot about Nicodemus. Um, scripture gives us a little insight to him, uh, to this man, Nicodemus. The first thing we find here in John chapter 3, it says that he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. We know the sect of the Pharisees were a sect of the Jews that sought to be a pious people. In Jesus' day, they were uh, scholars of the law. They not only were scholars of the Old Testament law, but they, they continually were adding to the law, and they were, they were the ones that were policing the law in a lot of the lives of the other people. Now, when we look at the beginning of the sect of the Pharisees, we need to go back into the time when the Greeks were uh, holding the power in Jerusalem and Judea, and the, Jew, the, the Greeks were determined to assimilate the Jews into the Jewish culture, or into the Greek culture. And I don't have time to go into a lot of that, but. Uh, the Pharisee sect arose as a resistance to being secularized into the Greek culture. They refused to be assimilated. And you have the Maccabeans, the Maccabean revolts, and out of there you have the Pharisees. Uh, they were asking to be those that could keep the law according to the understanding they had. And as time went on over the next 300 years, 250 some years, uh, you know, they became a very smug, self-righteous people. Uh, that was, and, and Nicodemus was numbered among the Pharisees. 
The second thing that we notice here is that he was a ruler of the Jews. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council. The Sanhedrin Council was a group of 70 people that made up what we would call today the Jewish Senate. I mean, if you liken it to our, uh, our uh, government today, it, would, uh, it was a council of 70 men that were appointed from among the Pharisees uh, and some of the Sadducees to be the ones that would give direction to the state of Israel as it pertained to them being the people of God. Uh, we have the Romans that, that were over them, but the Romans at this point in time kind of left the affairs of the Jewish people in the hands of the Sanhedrin Council. Uh, the other thing that we find if we go over to verse 10 in this passage of scripture, that he was a, he was a teacher in Israel. In other words, if we would put it today, he was, he was a doctor of theology. You know, he, had, he had the answers to what God had said and how it was to be fleshed out. Uh, this was this man Nicodemus now we do find another side of Nicodemus It gives a little more insight into his life and that is in John 7 verse 50 he defends Jesus before the council uh, the Sanhedrin council in, in John chapter 7 they intended to put Jesus to death uh, they, they were the Jewish people it was earlier on in Jesus ministry uh, people were rejecting the message that he had uh, the Jewish people were, the Jewish leaders were very concerned of the influence that Jesus was going to have in the nation. And so their, their idea was that they're going to silently kind of get Jesus out of the way. However, Nicodemus reminded them that our law does not judge any man until it hears him. Now he, he defended Jesus before the council and they called off their intent at that time. Lastly, the thing we know of Nicodemus in John 19:39, he was present at the Jesus burial. Uh, he assisted Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Jesus' body. And uh, he was a man of observation. I believe, you know, as he observed Jesus' life, there's a lot of questions that Nicodemus had. And so we see Nicodemus here coming to, uh, to Jesus by night. And I'm not sure exactly what his purposes was of, of Nicodemus coming by night, but I believe he was probably looking for some quality time with a person to whom he had deep questions. Uh, I find it interesting that he came to Jesus by night and he said unto him, Rabbi, and that term rabbi, he recognized Jesus as a teacher, as a master in Israel. He was one that had some insight and uh, would probably have answers to some of the questions of Nicodemus's heart. He says, I know that thou art a teacher, come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And so we don't really know. It's interesting here as I look at this passage, Nicodemus came and he had questions about the deep matters of life. But, you know, he never seems to get that question asked until Jesus is speaking to him. 
And I believe the questions that Nicodemus had was regarding the kingdom of God. You know, he was one of the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked for the long-promised kingdom and the coming of Messiah that was going to deliver them from Gentile rule and establish a kingdom that was going to rule and reign over the rest of the kingdoms of this world. So that's what Nicodemus likely had questions on. What about the kingdom of God? What about the kingdom, the promised kingdom? And I think the second thing that Nicodemus had in mind was what was the significance of all the current events that were taking place in his time, in that hour, in that day? You know, we have John the Baptist coming and preaching in, uh, preaching, uh, in the wilderness and baptizing in Jordan. And the masses of people of Israel were going out to see John the Baptist and, and his message. And we find it in verse 5, uh, or verse 3, Jesus uh, answers Nicodemus. We don't have the questions. He answers the question regarding the kingdom of God. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, we go down to verse 5. He, he reiterates, he, he, he brings this up again in verse 5. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. First he says, truly, truly, uh, it's, when Jesus uses the term verily, verily, he is using the strongest form of language of affirmation of the truth of the fact that follows. Not sure if you're with me with that, but Jesus affirms that without a doubt. Uh, cannot be any, any, any other way. He says, except a man be born of, of, again, he cannot see the kingdom. And I think that simply means that he cannot understand the significance of the kingdom. You know, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus in, one, in Luke's gospel saying, uh, you know, asking about the kingdom, and Jesus says that they're not to say, lo, here is the kingdom, or lo, there. You know, they, they, there was a group came to Jesus demanding when the kingdom of God should appear. And Jesus told them that the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, but the kingdom of God is within you or among you, is, is, is the interpretation there. So we have Nicodemus here, Jesus speaking of the kingdom of God. He says, you need to be born again. And uh, verse 5, he says, you need to be born of the water and of the spirit. And I find it interesting here that Jesus brings up the water. And I'd like to turn back to Matthew chapter 3, this is right at the, the time where John the Baptist is still preaching, uh, preaching and baptizing. We turn to Matthew chapter 3. I'd like to read the first 12 verses there. 
kind of get a picture of where Nicodemus was at. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this same John had a raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, all the regions around about Jordan, and they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O ye generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruit, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves that we have Abraham to our father, and for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. In verse 10 he says, Now also the axe is laid to the root of the tree, therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose, hand is, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, as we look at this man, Nicodemus, he was very likely one of those men that was out there hearing the message of John. Uh, he was not one of them that had a willingness to confess his sin and to repent. Uh, he was looking for a kingdom in another manner. But Jesus teaches us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is among the rest of the nations of the world. We are born into that kingdom by a second birth. That second birth comes as we are willing to repent of our sins and humble ourselves before God and accept the salvation that he has brought to us. You know, that is the step, that is the first step of the new birth. But Nicodemus was standing back and not willing, seemingly not willing. We don't know a lot about Nicodemus, but we know the, the, uh, the, the reality is most of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they were a group of people that didn't have time for the message of John. They didn't have time for the message of repentance. They didn't have time for the baptism of water. And I would like to simply say, you know, as we look at this, he says, except ye be born of the water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, these were people that trusted simply in a heritage. They prided themselves in a law that they were uh, a law from God whose way, you know, and these people 
You know, they refuse to surrender their heart and lives to God's ways. There was that obstinance. As we look at the baptism that John had, we notice the people were coming, they were confessing their sins, and they were repenting of their sins, and then they were baptized. You know, it's very significant that water that Jesus or that John was baptizing them with was simply an expression of their surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now I realize John's baptism still, uh, he was acknowledging that he was baptizing with the water unto repentance. But you know that water, as we look at baptism today, uh, baptism is not something that in itself is going to save a person. But the person who repents of his sin and is turning his heart and life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is in obedience going to accept baptism as a statement of faith that I have accepted. I have yielded my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and I am now entering into a covenant with him to walk with him. You know, in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of ceremonial washings. None of them made the one that washed clean. I could uh, appreciate what Brother Matt shared there on the, the, uh, the washing, the cleansing. And, uh, but you know, Jesus, Jesus wants, before there is the washing and the cleansing, there needs to be the repentance. The first step of the new birth is us surrendering our will, repenting of sin, confessing our sin, and being made clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's then that God gives his spirit into the life of an individual and a person is born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you know, ye must be born again. The question that Nicodemus had, he says, how can a man, when he is old, be born again? And I just like to simply say this evening that birth is a miracle. It, whether, it's, whether it's the physical, natural birth, whereby we came into this world, or whether it's rebirth, both are a miracle. <coughs> I remember years ago, it was in 1994, Grace and I had a, or Grace had a, we had a stillborn son. And I remember, it's a long, uh, how should I say, it, you know, the time had came for birth to take place and we were planning on having the child at home with the services of a midwife when the midwife came, she sensed complications. She suggested that we go to the hospital for tests and all kinds of diagnostics to try and find out what is going on. And we got uh, in there, long story short, it's coming to the end of the day. The doctor that was in charge said, I don't know what's wrong. He said, something is wrong. 
And he said, the sooner the baby is in the nursery, the sooner we know. And of course, we went through the emergency C-section and the child was born, but the child, because of complications, was unable to live. That doctor, I remember him coming in. He was, he was a professional doctor. He was all doctor. I don't think he was a Christian man. Uh, he was rather rough-spoken man. But he, he came in that evening and the other interesting thing about this doctor, I think at the end of that week was his final day. Uh, he was retiring. And he had delivered this child with a C-section that didn't live. And he was pretty tore up. He was, a, he, was a, he was a man that was straight up business when it came to the doctor. He, he used some rather coarse language the reality of that birth that was a stillborn he sat there in the chair and he said you know he said the miracle of it all when we consider what's involved in birth he said that there isn't more cases like yours he said birth is a miracle life is a miracle and I'd like to say this evening that new birth is a miracle. You know, when a sinner comes and confesses his sin, repents of his sin, and confesses Jesus Christ as his Savior, trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ to take away, to cancel sin, to cleanse sin, it is there that God meets us where we are. It's there God gives the gift of his Holy Spirit in the life of a penitent believer, and new life begins. It's thrilling to watch children that are born grow, be nurtured to life, grow to adulthood, uh, serve the Lord. You know, that's, that's, that's great, but when we look at the spiritual life, to see one was bond in sin or come to the knowledge of sin as a young person God speaks God knocks in the heart and points out areas in her life that are separating us from God and that person hears the voice of God confesses sin repents seeks Jesus as his Savior it's there that God meets that individual. As that individual surrenders his life and his heart to Christ, to walk with him, to follow him, God pours out his Holy Spirit, the life of that individual. And to me, there's nothing as exciting as seeing the spiritual growth that begins to take place in the life one that has given his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. This evening, you know, going back into the Old Testament uh, parallel, John reminds us, I was going to turn to that, but I don't think I'm going to. And John, uh, John 3, verses, uh, I'm back in Matthew 3. That's why it's not lining up. Uh, John chapter 3. 
as he speaks to Nicodemus about the new birth. They have some conversation about his lack of understanding. But then he comes back to, to uh, an Old Testament detail, and that is in verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, back in the book of Numbers, we have the account there in Numbers 21 of the children of Israel journeying in the wilderness. And they began to murmur, and they began to complain, and they began to accuse God of bringing them out in the wilderness to die. Their hearts were, were turned away from God. They were, their hearts were back in the things of Egypt. And we know the account how God sent fiery serpents among them to bite them and to uh, bring death into the camp. And the people repented. They said, we have sinned. We have sinned. And they came to Moses confessing their sin. And Moses interceded to God for them. And God says, you know, you make a brazen serpent and put it on the pole. Those that are bitten of that snake, uh, if they look on that serpent, they're going to be healed. They're going to be healed. Now, snake bites, I had a granddaughter that had a snake bite a number of years ago. And I always thought when a person is bitten by a snake that, you know, uh, you kind of just die from it. Well, I, I realized through that situation that that death is a, a long painful, agonizing death. The swelling of the area of the body that was bitten swells and there's in, intense pain uh, involved in that. And yet the ultimate end for many with that kind of snake bite uh, dies where uh, after 10 vials of anti-venom, several days in the hospital, she is with us today. Praise God. But, you know, these people that were bitten, they were agonizing. They were in the miseries of the results of their sin. The opportunity was to look on that brazen serpent. And I have to wonder, as I know the, the ways of humanity, how many people laid on their beds dying and yet refusing to look. Just obstinate in going on in their ways where healing was a matter of surrender and looking. Jesus says, just as that snake was lifted up, even so, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be lifted up on a cross, there to agonize and die and shed his blood so that those that look upon him, those that confess their sin and come to him, can be healed of the deathly bite of sin. That salvation God has provided gives entrance into the kingdom of God. God's people living in the here and now. And we can look on at that. We can look at the, the, uh, 
the effects of a spirit-filled life. It's a life that the multitudes of the world are not going to understand. They can't understand why and what makes a person love the things of God. Love to walk in his ways, but Jesus says that the wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof. You can know not whence it came or whither it goeth, but we see the effects. That's the way it is in the life of one that is born again of the Spirit of God. The Spirit directs that life into paths of righteousness and peace and joy. One more thing I want to share yet. You know, we look at the vileness of sins in the world today. And sometimes we hear of things that are unthinkable and say how evil, how wretched, how detestable, and how must God view that? A holy God. But I would like to say this evening, in verse 19, it says, and this is condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Uh, for every man that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth the truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be wrought, uh, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. I believe today the greatest sin a man can, uh, can commit is to hear the message of the gospel and to refuse it. Jesus said this is condemnation. Light has come into the world. You know, we know the way of truth. We, Jesus came, the light of the world. He has shown us the truth. He has shown us the way to salvation. He shows us a way to redemption and forgiveness. But for a person to refuse that, I believe is the greatest sin that one can commit. I need to bring this to a close this evening. You know, the question is, have you been born again? That's a question I ask various people as I meet them on, on the way of life. Uh, have you been born again? And it's interesting to hear some of the answers that you get. But there's only one answer that's going to bring you into the kingdom. And that is the affirm affirmative that I have been born again. Uh, I've been, have my sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. And I have the Spirit of God dwelling within. This evening, the question is, have you been born again? Let's bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat>